Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. The core drive of our species is actually not for food or for uh, the discharge of erotic or aggressive impulses. We really have one core drive and that is to connect securely with um, an attachment figure, another human being, for soothing, comforting connection, uh, emotion co-regulation. Why is our need for attachment so vital? Well, I mean, first and foremost, the birth canal is too narrow for big brain, big body babies to come issuing out that can survive on their own. Uh, Many mammals are born and within days, they are actually capable of hunting and uh, attaining shelter. But uh, our species takes decades before we can actually uh, sustain or become self-sustaining on our own. We require constant uh, nurture and protection for uh, many, many years of our lives to survive. So what would make Adults stick around for the arduous, unpleasant at times task of parenting, changing diapers and so forth, putting up with constant cries and all that. Well, um, natural selection to ensure the survival of our species uh, produced in our brains or Uh, embedded the production of oxytocin. That is the emotional glue that binds us together, that creates attachment bonds. Some people refer to it as the uh, cuddle. It's It's a peptide, I believe, that actually really amplifies any Um, interpersonal connection when we feel positively connected it makes us feel really really good and when we feel uh, abandoned it makes us feel really really bad so it amplifies the uh, the attachment events of our lives on top of this we have a dedicated neural circuit in our brain in the anterior cingulate cortex we know from the work of Lieberman and others that Uh, uh, Eisenberg that essentially activates greater uh, endorphins, essentially opiates in our brain when we feel we've connected, uh, when we've bonded with someone and when we fail to bond it lowers the endorphins so we feel less comfortable we feel actually a greater degree of discomfort in our lives Um, And literally also it lowers serotonin, which is essentially the neurotransmitter that uh, allows for mood stabilization. And when people have ongoing anxiety, depressive disorders, generally their serotonin has to be regulated. So one of the sure ways to uh, activate anxiety and depression in a human being is to deprive them of interpersonal bonding. So there's a lot of studies that show how deeply vital uh, connection is for our species. Um, David Rolfs, who's a psychologist at the University of Louisville, Kentucky, did an analysis of 90, a meta-analysis of 90 studies, including, get this, half a billion people. Now, if you, like me, follow clinical studies, there, that doesn't exist, a half a billion people study, but somehow he managed to do this. And he found that people who, are, uh, who attribute themselves as uh, single 
have a life expectancy that is in men eight to 17 years shorter than men who tribute themselves in, in committed relationships. Single women have lifespans that are seven to 15 years shorter than women who attribute themselves as being in uh, committed, comforting relationships. Uh, Waxler, Morrison, Wheels, Carey, Lutengorf, these are all different studies, showed that across cancer populations, people who um, self-report being in long-term committed relationships have significantly longer lifespans. People who are in long-term relationships when they have coronary bypass are 300% likelier to be alive five years later. Um, survivors of 9-11, a uh, clinical study showed, had, who were in, in attachment bonds, were significantly less susceptible to PTSD symptoms. So it helps you live longer, it helps you process your emotions, it helps you heal from both emotional and traumatic, physical traumatic events. This doesn't mean that, I should say that this doesn't mean the person in the relationship or the person we identify as being in the committed kind of, of connection has to be necessarily a sexual or romantic nature. If you feel that you have a best friend who would be invariably available in a time of need, somebody who is uh, capable of creating, a, a, and I'll tell you the bare needs of attachment that may create a felt sense of a secure base, but I'm not suggesting that it has to be necessarily a romantic partner, but uh, there's no doubt that all species that have high levels of oxytocin, and we have staggeringly high levels of oxytocin, are species that pair up, that bond with others. In childhood and throughout the lifespan, as Bowlby noted from cradle to grave, people who feel a solid connection, what's called a secure base with another human being, are far more likely to explore the world, to take risks, to be creative, to express authentically their emotions. So these are vital attributes for growth and a sense of purpose and well-being. So what are the core needs that we all have from cradle to grave that establish a sense that someone is securely there? As Bowlby noted, the first incident of our lives is not only the need to make eye contact with someone, but the need to have a felt sense that when we cry or when we're emotional, someone will respond. It's the cry and response, the expression of an emotion and the getting of attention that is so vital for our sense of well-being, purpose, security in the world. So there's four qualities we need to thrive. The first is a sense that um, of safety and protection when we're with this uh, attachment figure, as it's called. So what is safety and protection? In childhood, it literally means someone that will protect the infant and ward off threats and dangers and create a state of warmth. In adult life, what we need is someone who will stay with us, maintain proximity. That felt sense of dedication when we're sick, that someone will sit with us, when we're frightened, that someone will be with us, etc., is a key need. The second is we need emotional attunement and mirroring. That means somebody's not only there, but they're also getting us how we feel. They understand when we feel sad or lonely or frightened or angry or joyous or silly or whatever state you're in, not be judged or criticized or abandoned. You will feel that that person is willing to stay and understand how you're feeling. 
three is soothing, that's pretty easy to describe. We all need to have a sense that our attachment figures are available to help down-regulate us, to make us feel calmer when we feel in a state of physical panic, anxiety, distress. Many of our core emotions are associated with sympathetic nervous system, hypervigilance, heart racing, blood pumping, bouncy attention, a feeling of being vulnerable or in a state of threat. So we need people that can down-regulate that. Others of us go into an, an ancient parasympathetic dorsal dive where we literally check out, we space out, we fog out, we disconnect from reality. And so in that case, we need somebody who can gently lift us back to connection. So the fourth quality is delight and appreciation. Somebody who not only can soothe us when we're in distress, but somebody who appreciates us when we're being creative, silly, just, you know, being an adult. We are faced with countless pressures and demands and obligations. And we need to have the sense that somebody is appreciating our efforts, our resolve, our resilience. So those are the four core needs. We need them in childhood, we need them in adult life. We don't ever, there's no graduate course where you don't need these, uh, these four qualities. We need to feel safe with someone, we need to feel understood emotionally, we need to feel soothed, and we need to have somebody delight or uh, uh, have a sense, delight in us, or have a sense of at least appreciation of our creativity and our efforts. Someone who appreciates our growth. Now, given how vital the need for attachment is for our health, our emotion regulation, our longevity, why is it that it's such a struggle establishing a secure connection? Our early relationships define love for us. Even though we're born with a need for attachment, we're not born with an innate sense of what healthy attachment is. We're just born with the need. But we're not born with any kind of, this is what a healthy partner looks like. The need is so strong for, for being protected and seen that we will go for whatever attributes a caregiver has and assume the brain just builds its expectations upon what we get in childhood. The experience that happens in that early first two years of life, literally the first two years, how depressing is that? We, literally, we can't remember the most important events in our life. Patterns of our interactions determine whether we believe love is someone who's available and soothing and attentive or whether it's somebody who's sometimes available and sometimes not, or whether it's someone who's emotionally distant and unavailable, or whether it's someone who's at times cruel and abusive. We, whatever we get, we assume that's what love is. Not even intellectually, but the right hemisphere, which is the emotional hub of the brain, believes that's the kind of person I need to continue to attach with. That's what it was in my childhood. That's what I'm going to look for. So what's even vital to understand is if you get a secure attachment, which roughly 50% of us do, um, then when you are with someone that in childhood, when you were with this available, loving, kind parent, uh, it, made, it created a feeling of safety and ease and comfort, a sense of warmth that felt really good. And because you have that feeling, you will gravitate when, towards that feeling again. And you will use unconsciously that feeling to help navigate and find a partner. But suppose you struggle to bond with one of your attachment figures. Suppose they weren't really constantly available or they were emotionally... Uh, distant or depressed or invariably frightened or they were at times scary, well then you don't get a positive warm feeling from you never got that you never got the reliable attachment so there no feeling was embedded in you 
when you did get attachment or attention or love and those those interspersed, unreliable, irregular times, it didn't create a feeling of warmth and soothing and comfort. It would have created in, in us a feeling of excitement. Holy shit, I'm finally getting dad or mom's attention. This is great because I so they're so you know, distracted all the time or unavailable or they're so critical or they're so judgmental. Finally, I'm getting a little bit of love here. It's exciting. So as a result, in our adult life, we will chase after people who create that feeling of excitement, not the feeling of warmth and comfort. Uh, We won't have that feeling embedded in us. So when we're with somebody who's reliable, we're not going to feel anything. And what that means is the person who is available and who is dedicated and who does want to be with us, if we didn't get it in childhood, will create no feeling in us and therefore we will not gravitate. We will find them to be boring. On the other hand, a person who's only sporadically available or indifferent or... uh, hesitant with their expressions of love, that's the person that we'll chase after because they will create a feeling in us. And that's one of the things that's so vital to understand is we do not make decisions logically. We are not a logical species. As we've known from Damasio and from all the theorists after Antonio Damasio's work, we make decisions based on feelings. They're called clinically somatic markers, but essentially we choose our partners, we choose the places we work, we choose, our, the, we make the big decisions in life where, where we're going to go on, if we go on a trip, you know, uh, where we're going to live. All of those are based on gut feelings. It's exactly the same process, a somatic marker, as when. I offer you two choices for your dinner. Now, all of us, I'm not going to say, most of us, many of us, some of us didn't, but many of us grew up loving grilled cheese sandwiches, right? Grilled cheese sandwiches. What's not to like? Bread and cheese. You know, it's like pizza, right? So when somebody offers you the possibility of eating a grilled cheese sandwich, it's even if you're on a diet, it's going to immediately evoke a pleasant feeling. On the other hand, if I offer you something that's healthy that you never got in childhood, butternut risotto, (laughs) butter squash, squash risotto, or whatever, you get it. Uh, Or, uh, I don't know, uh, kale quinoa salad, right? You will not, yeah, but most of us will not have had early life experiences where where the butter nut squash risotto created a good feeling. So in adult life, when you're under stress or making an important, a lot of shit's going on, and somebody says, what would you like? Pizza or something you've never had before. (laughs) You're going to choose the pizza or the grilled cheese sandwiches because that evokes the positive feeling. Likewise, if we didn't get secure attachment in childhood, therefore we have no positive warm feelings to go by when we're with someone who is safe and kind and committed, we will not choose that person. Are you following? I hope so. If we want to change our patterns, what's known as repetition compulsion, we not only have to have, of course, what the Buddha called Kalyanamita, a support group, people who help us get our attachment needs met, not just not putting all the pressure on the one person. And not only will we need a, some kind of self-soothing uh, behaviors, meditation, For some people, gardening, uh, drawing, playing an instrument, uh, knitting, uh, whatever. Something that you do with your hands. We need to be able to self-soothe. But 
we need to have a deeply embedded sense of what secure attachment is like so that when we are now looking for new close best friends or when we're looking for a partner, we can have an internal physiological somatic marker that will respond positively when we meet someone who is available. Until we have that, we will feel nothing. And we will gravitate very often towards people who just create excitement. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a flavor of excitement when we choose a partner. But if that's all we're looking for, that means we're only going to be choosing people who are unreliable. Because... To get our needs met, we also we need two different qualities. We need to have a bit of excitement, but we also have to have a sense of reliable, predictable, safe, and available. So we need to be able to create that feeling as a marker to help us make informed decisions in our life. So... Um, We're going to be doing that in our meditation. I'm actually going to be guiding a, a new uh, model based on creating uh, visualizations of secure attachment. We're going to note how it makes us feel. And then we're going to learn how to discern the somatic markers that let us know when we're with someone who is truly available, someone who is... Uh, uh, willing to put the hard work in. And it's interesting, the right hemisphere which makes these gut decisions actually is the fastest and smartest part of the human brain. The neurons in the right hemisphere that do the parallel processing, it only has one real deep job. Your left hemisphere has a million jobs. It's parsing language, it's keeping track of projects, it's got to worry about what am I going to do on Wednesday, how, what am I going to get my food for dinner, how am I going to pay the rent, and it's got all that shit, right? It's doing a lot. Your right hemisphere, it's got, it's, its job is, am I safe with this person or not? That's really what the right hemisphere's core job boils down to, along with some spatial recognition, but... In our ancestral past, it was vital that we quickly come up with an accurate read or appraisal of other people, whether they were safe, whether we could drop our guard, whether we could rely on them for being a vital member of a hunter-gatherer collective, or whether they were untrustworthy. And the human brain, actually, when we learn to adapt this tool, is incannily capable of doing that job quickly and accurately. The problem is most of us are only are using that, that incredible tool of being able to appraise people, but we're only looking for the feeling of excitement. It doesn't know how to produce the feeling of warmth and safety and ease and comfort and relax. So once we show it how to do that, it will be our greatest ally. Now... Um, Couples therapists, I should know, if we are in a relationship and we're struggling in a relationship, there's actually, uh, you know, the core of couples therapy is to be able to restore the capability of a partner to meet our core attachment needs, the ones we talked about at the beginning. Uh, there's three large contemporary schools of couples therapy. Uh, Gottman, Amago Relational Therapy, Herbal Hendricks's group, and uh, Sue Johnson's Emotion Focused uh, Therapies, EFT. So those are the three. And pretty much all couples therapists who've uh, studied extensively will, if you go into their office, they'll have one of those <laughs> three authors' books and they will be using their tools. Gottman's work is based on the emphasis on bids for attention. Couples that, all of us are unconsciously seeking attention all the time. The, we say, we make gestures, 
human beings are attention-seeking species. That's what makes us feel safe is when we get someone's attention. And the, the work of Gottman's Institute is teaching people how to safely respond to their partner's bids for attention. Any couple that doesn't respond to each other's bids 75% of the time, I don't remember the exact percentage, but I believe it's around there, is doomed. <laughs> Literally. They broke it down. They did films of couples, and they observe all the micro movements that were seeking attention, and they looked and they saw the couples that bonded and stayed together were the couples where each partner would respond it turns out that the ratio of positive to negative responses we need is exactly the same as the fear structures in the human brain. Here's what it looks like. For every missed opportunity to get someone's attention that we love and care about, we need to have five experiences of positive, you know, someone who looks up from their phone and says, hey, what's going on? What did you want? If you don't get that five to one ratio, then you are going to start having an active amygdala that's going to start creating feelings of vulnerability. It's going to start creating anxiety. It's going to start creating or a sense of distance seeking. You're not going to feel in any way safe in the relationship. And over time, it will create a lot of essentially conflict. It's the same ratio in fear. If you show people, to, if you show Im, uh, images of people with negative expressions to images of positive expressions, people smiling, looking inviting, you, all human beings are five times more likely to remember the negative faces. Negative experiences carry so much more emotional weight for us than positive. So for every time we expect attention or as some form of attunement and we don't get it, it leads a very powerful neural imprint that makes us feel vulnerable. And for emotional repair to happen, we need to have a bunch of essentially reparative events where somebody drops and pays attention. In Gottman's work, they emphasize when a partner calls for our attention, not being judgmental, not being contemptuous, I think that should be obvious, but I'm just going to say that. Uh, not being defensive, being willing to hear someone express frustration with us and not needing to immediately defend ourselves, just get, be able to hear it. And then finally, the not what's called stonewalling. Stonewalling in Gottman's terms is when somebody you're talking to starts drifting away they start disconnecting, they start looking away, you can tell that they're not paying attention to you. So those are the four qualities we need, just somebody to look up and listen. And if you get that, Gottman's work shows that chances are the relationship will thrive because your core needs for attachment will be met. You're not being judged, abandoned, criticized, you're just being heard. Now in Hendrix's Imago Relational Therapy, Relationship Therapy, IRT, um, the emphasis is on mirroring dialogues. Uh, if you went to an Imago therapist, the core tool you would be given would be you'd sit with your partner and your partner maybe would go first and they talk about something that maybe is frustrating them or something that's exciting for them. And rather than responding the ground rule in the, the couples therapy would be that you would repeat back what you heard in different language to show that you really listened. And then, before you got to respond, you'd have to say what emotion your partner was experiencing. And that's hard. And that's hard. Because that requires not just listening to words, but listening to, but taking in the more important signals we're constantly sending neuroceptive, unconscious body language signals that, you know, if you're with somebody and you don't really feel that they're listening, you'll lean in, you'll talk louder, you'll, you'll change the subject, you'll do something unconsciously to get their attention. And so the ability to emotionally get 
someone is vital to make them feel safe, seen, and emotionally understood. So in Hendrix's work, that's the way we dialogue back and forth in couples therapy. I feel a little bit disappointed that you said you would uh, set aside time this weekend for us to go to a gallery and you instead did something with your friends and that made me feel you know, a little abandoned and then the partner, instead of defending or saying, well, I didn't know it was important, they would simply have to repeat, I hear you. I, I heard that you we were looking forward for us doing something and I instead chose to do something else and that that's making you feel um, unsafe, not heard, not cared about, not prioritized, etc. You do that, meeting attachment needs. Important to note, in both these therapies, the emphasis on changing behaviors is far less important than simply being able to hear and repeat back what someone's saying. And this is important. In my work, I've seen over 15 years that what we need is less to feel that we can change somebody as much as we need to feel that we can be heard without judgment and criticism. If we feel that, we're willing to try to make something work. But if we don't feel heard, if we don't feel seen, if we don't feel understood, then we're not getting our core needs met. Finally, with emotions-focused therapy, Sue Johnson's work will have couples remember the times in their relationship where they got their core needs met. And the practice is verbalizing, I felt loved when you, I felt cared about when you, I felt really seen the other day when you, and they practice expressing their attachment needs and then each week practicing how to meet their partner's core attachment needs so they can rebuild that fundamental emotional ground that makes us feel safe and committed. So finally, before we meditate, uh, the the summary of all this is that um, learning to love and learning to be loved is all about learning to monitor our own feelings, our own emotions. It's about learning to create a felt sense of what it's like to be secure and choose that. It's about being willing to take the risk and the vulnerability of really listening without defending ourselves. Being willing to hear at times difficult words and simply instead of feeling that need to uh, state our case, be willing to simply say, I, I hear you're saying that you feel frustrated or disappointed or sad or lonely and not taken care of. If we can do that, um, there's every chance that we can wind up with some form of a secure partnership and reap all the benefits that are associated with that. So, I hope something was worth listening to in that. Now we're going to do the meditation where we actually create the felt sense of security so we can use it as a guide, not just for choosing partners, but also as a guide for choosing friends and choosing therapists and choosing... Uh, roommates choosing I don't know, I wish we could choose our relatives right? <laughs> alright so find a really comfortable seated position take a full complete in breath through the nose and it's okay for you. Lift your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears. And then as you breathe out through your mouth, rotate your shoulders back and drop them so that when you rotate your shoulders back and you drop them, you open up your chest. When you open up your chest, you actually start to engage what's called the vagal break. That's literally the nerve clusters around your heart, and it actually slows down your heartbeat, slows down the uh, circulation, reduces your blood pressure, 
So it puts you into a greater rest state. And now a second full, complete in-breath and either pull in or push out your abdomen, whatever feels most awkward. So for some of us, that's pulling it in. For some of us, that's pushing it out. Whatever feels really uh, unlikely. And then as you breathe out, soften the muscles around the abdomen. And what we're doing here is we are actually toning the old vagal cluster associated with the ancient parasympathetic dorsal dive also helps enter the rest and digest when the stomach is really tight contracted very often not only do we stop digestion but we also stop the production of white blood cells we start overproducing red blood cells, even though we don't need them. So open chest, soft belly. And for the third complete in-breath, squinch the muscles in the face, clench the jaw, furrow the brow, pinch the nose, just make an awkward face. And as you breathe out, Smooth out the face, relax the jaw, unclench it. Soften the micro muscles around the eyes. So we're going to sit for a while just soothing the nervous system. One simple way to do that is try to have a natural breath, but try to incline the exhalations to be far longer and smoother than they may be if we're stressed or busy. The human nervous system is unfortunately set for far too high defensive state given our relative uh, safety. We walk around with hearts beating far too fast, amygdalas activated too quickly, sympathetic nervous systems stuck in hypervigilance. The most effective way is to just learn how to extend the exhalations, which also engage the vagal break and encourage a state of rest. So one way to do this is just to count the in breath, so if it takes a beat of three, one, two, three, while you breathe in, then count to six on the exhalations. One, two, three, four, five, six, etc. And then try to keep that long, extended, relaxing out breath. Another way to do it is just follow the energy up the body with the inhalation and then slowly monitor the state of release that happens as we exhale. One technique I've often used is to use a phrase that's got a lot of syllables on the out-breath. So on the in-breath, may all beings and then on the out breath, feel safe, <coughs> protected, free of stress. <coughs> it could be any phrase you like, but 
adding more syllables to the exhalation so that you're just gently extending those out breaths. And while we sit toning the nervous system, creating a sense of ease, you can also just listen to the sounds drifting up from the Bowery or in the room. You can feel ambient body sensations or the closed eye lights that flicker. All of these can be a part of the meditation because they're all actually occurring. What we don't want to give attention to is anything the brain is manufacturing entirely on its own memories or words, ideas, visual images of the past or the future. If those occur, and they will of course occur, just allow them to be in the background, but really put the effort into either paying attention to the breath, the sounds, staying present. As they say, the only, the Buddha said, the only possible time for liberation is right now. Eventually some persistent, traumatic, crafty thought will grab hold of your attention and abscond with it. And before you know it, you won't be present with the breath. You won't hear the actual sounds. You won't feel the fluidity of the body. When that happens, there's no point or need or value to be self-critical. There's no role for self-criticism or judgment in the practice. When you find your mind has wandered, each time, even if it's 500 times, just gently take a nice, complete in-breath and long exhalation. Just create a comforting feeling to land back in the present.
So at this point, you can allow the awareness of breath and sounds to reside in the background of attention. And for the second part, we're going to do a visualization meditation. At this point, I'd like you to, if you can imagine, a future scene where you're in a really safe, intimate relationship with someone who really wants to spend time doing and getting to know what brings you joy, really appreciates and is interested in you. And just see if you can create a specific day-to-day or a specific setting. Something that you'd really like to do with someone. It could be anything. Taking a class going out dancing, going to a gallery, walking through a new neighborhood, sitting by a river, cooking a meal, gardening, traveling. Just visualize something that you really would like to have a partner or a dedicated companion available and just create an image with that scene and any image that you can to create a sense of being with someone. If you can create a visual image of who this partner would be entirely from your imagination or based on someone, that's fine. But it should be someone who conveys a sense of dedication, interest, someone who would prioritize you. Really try to fill in the details of this scene. Where are you exactly? Would this partner be facing you or standing by your side? Would it be cold or warm? Would you be sitting or standing? How close would they be to make you feel comfortable? Create the perfect scene that makes you feel safe but not too crowded, that makes you feel a sense of presence, but not. In any way, uncomfortable. The perfect sense of comfort with someone. And when you have that, see if you can find in your body some feeling. For many it might be a sense of openness in the chest, warmth moving up the sternum, or softness behind the eyes, or a sense of the neck muscles relaxing, or a sense of the belly suddenly feeling less tight. It's important as we've noted, to come, to become aware of your somatic, your felt sense. of secure connection. What does it feel like to get your needs met? 
Now imagine needing this person's attention. Something, perhaps, a distressing event or a challenging setback or stress. Feeling that need to connect and having that person be there. Not in any way telling you what to do. No judgment. No criticism. No defensiveness. Just interest. someone available to just hear how difficult it can feel. And knowing that having that sense of someone being there, how would that feel? Where would you feel it in your body? Someone who helps you feel comforted and soothed. And now slightly changing. You've now done something creative. You've taken a bit of a risk expressing yourself. And this person greets it with a sense of delight. You can be silly, you can draw, sing, dance. Your most spontaneous state of expression is greeted. How does that feel? That sense of a warm, energetic core is so vital to know. So let go of the images and just see if you can sustain for a moment that feeling of having a secure base in life. Just let it linger a little while. Momentarily I'm going to ring the bowl and see if you can bring some of that even subtle ease or warmth or whatever you've connected with, bring it into the rest of the evening. 